Uh, I had a Bible. I don't know what happened to my Bible up here. Uh, but I always figure it's a good thing when somebody rips off your Bible. They probably needed it more than you did. For Halloween, for Halloween Christmas party, my uh, son dressed up as a pirate. My one daughter went as a cheerleader. And uh, I heard a dad. I thought, my, are my kids in here? I forget what my other daughter's being. But I decided to dress up like a real minister. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> For those of you who are visiting us, uh, this isn't my normal. I, I just got this morning, I fell into kind of one of these classy moods. You know, I just felt, that's what I like about having a place that doesn't really have a dress code, is that you can keep the element of surprise. And uh, no one, you know, wear jeans one time and a, and a suit and tie the next time. And it's, the shock value is kind of fun. So I, I've, I, I've enjoyed doing that. And I do feel kind of sophisticated and classy this morning. Okay, let's move to Hebrews chapter 12. Paul read a couple of verses that... I'll be using uh, in this um, message as we continue our series on home improvement. Um, this is the fourth out of five messages that relate to family concerns. And this morning, as Paul mentioned, I, I want to be talking about discipline, how God disciplines us and what we can learn from that about disciplining each other. And I'd like to read from Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 4, where the author says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Now, now, this is an encouraging word. Remind yourself of that. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you or punishes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as di discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I'd ask that you would uh, really come down here this morning. And I'm very aware, Lord, that words are totally incapable. Even words that are, are, are well-organized are incapable of producing the effect in our lives that need to be produced. And far from having organized thoughts, Lord, I, I'm very confused about this issue. And so I pray that you would use even my confused words, Lord, to uh, uh, give kingdom value to these words, Lord, to produce the change in our life and maybe the confrontation in our lives that we need to have happen to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. The first thing I need to tell you, uh, as one who has uh, repeatedly told you that I'm committed to speaking the truth at all costs from the pulpit, is that I feel very, very unqualified to talk on the subject here this morning. Let me tell you why. I'll give you an example. I, uh, I'm probably the only parent here, uh, me and my wife, who have this problem. We have an eight-year-old boy that we can't get to bed at night. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a two-hour-long ritual that we have to go through to get him into bed. You want to get him to bed at 8, you got to start at 6. You want to get him to bed at 8.30, you've got to start at 6.30. And there's all these hoops we've got to jump through and all these things that we've got to do uh, in order to get him there. And so you've got to do the homework, of course, and then you have to 
have the bedtime snack and the bedtime drink, and then you've got to go potty, and then you've got to brush your teeth, then you've got to say your prayers, and you've got to read a story, then you've got to put them in the bed. And you think, oh, good, we get to have an hour alone tonight. Married couples need an hour alone once in a while, and we need some sleep, and it looks like we're going to get it. But ten minutes later, he needs another drink. Then he's hungry again. And you do that again and again and again. And then he's afraid of the dark. He thinks he hears a monster in the closet, so you've got to check the closet. Then he thinks he hears tapping in the window, so you've got to check the window. Then he sees a hand on the wall, so you've got to go in there and check the wall. And you know there's no hand on the wall, but if you don't check it, he's going to go crazy, so you check that. And the confusion that I have, uh, the, the question that I have, and the thing that I'm not good at doing is answering this question, and the question is this. At what point do you say to the kid, shut up and go to bed? <laughs> you know, I want to understand my son's fear. Yeah, it's not bad to have fear. I, I want him to be all out about being afraid if he's afraid. And we negotiate. We crack the door, put on the nightlight, do all those kind of things. We stay outside, right, out, right outside of his room to make him feel safe. And I want him to feel secure, and I don't want to minimize that. But at some point, we got to sleep, and at some point, we want to talk to each other. And so at what point do I stop being Mr. Understanding and start being Mr. Discipline? At what point do I stop being Mr. Compassionate? At what point do I say, you get out of bed one more time, and I'm going to tan your hide? You know that monster in the closet? There is a monster in the closet, and if you get out of bed one more time, it's going to eat you alive! <laughs> I, we, we wrestle with that question as much as we wrestle with any question in our marriage. Because there's a, there's a whole lot of gray area. It's really easy when you say, here's the line, don't go over there, and he looks at you and puts his foot right there. That's easy. You know, discipline. He chooses the battle, you win the battle. What I find and what I'm not very clear at uh, and not very good at sorting out is all, are all those gray areas that exist in, in a marriage and in a family. And most of it seems to be gray. When, how do you balance compassion with discipline, understanding with, with, with discipline? When do you crack down? And how much should you discipline? How intense should you be? How do you know you're d being fair about it? Should you spank or should you not spank? There's that perennial question. And on and on and on and on. And frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confused about the whole thing. And this is coming from a guy who's been to every Bill Gothard seminar that ever was. Bill Gothard was the guru of, of uh, you know, family life, children, and, and uh, marriage and stuff in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know if he's still around today. Um, but I went to all those seminars, all the way up. And uh, on paper, it looks so great. It looks so wise. It looks so biblical. And it was this... All this great stuff, but I always found when I applied it, it didn't work. Or some of it worked, and there's some good stuff there, but it just, reality was too messy, and the real world was too complex to fit the nice kind of, you know, structure that he had. And I thought maybe it was my fault. Maybe I'm not a good enough umbrella of authority, you see. And, and anything that goes wrong in my family is my, there must be a leak in my umbrella. And I spent more days looking for that leak in the umbrella, but it just didn't seem to help me a whole lot. And so this week I was going to be preaching on discipline, and I, uh, I uh, went to the Bible to find biblical principles on discipline, and there are some there. But to be very honest with you, and I hope you're okay with this honesty, in some ways it confused me more than helped me. Now the first rule of thumb in preaching is preach what you know and not what you don't know. And here I am confessing all my ignorance. But I think there's value in that. It, it, uh, at the very least, it gives people permission to struggle with confusion and, and lets you know that you're not the only one that doesn't know how to do this stuff in a marriage. And it's not a sign of ungodliness if uh, you are confused, because I'm certainly not ungodly, and yet I'm confused. 
that was a joke. It also breaks the image of the pastor as the Wizard of Oz that you run to when you have a question. The wizard will know, the wizard will know, because the wizard doesn't know. So deal with it, your own problems. I got problems of my own. Leave me alone. <laughs> Confused about that. You know, in the Old Testament, here's a confusing thing. In the Old Testament, it was capital punishment to insult your father or to raise a hand against your father. Capital punishment. You take him out in the middle of the street and you call all your neighbors and you say, Hey! My teenager's going to get stoned. <laughs> and <laughs> it meant something back then, but it doesn't mean today. <laughs> and there are times when I would no doubt like to resurrect that Old Testament law. But the truth is, it's not a real preachable thing in the 21st century. So what do you do with that? There's a lot about that that I don't understand. And I suppose if I had to, I could research and find out God's thinking on that. And it had something to do with the gravity of sin and something to do with parental authority, I'm sure. But more than anything else, I don't quite get it. And that's not even the biggest thing that I'm confused about. The thing that really screws up my brain is when I start to think about God's discipline of us. The passage that we read this morning, that's a tough verse for me. And part of it, I think, and we're the, you know, I'm the baby boom generation, so I can blame my parents, right? So, so part of it's because I didn't have good role models as, uh, or a good role model as, 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 as a, for discipline. That has something to do with it. But I don't know what God's spanking looks like. And I think that a lot of people don't know what that spanking looks like. And we talk about God chastising his children, but I'm not sure that we really understand what we're always talking about. What does God's spanking look like? How do I know when I'm being disciplined by God? How do I know what I'm being disciplined for? Is it something that's very obvious and, and something that is clear-cut? Or is it all guesswork? Is it all speculation? How does God do that? I, I, I met a lady one time. And this is the problem that I have. If we begin to identify all tragedies and hardships and pain in life as coming from God in order to, to, to kind of uh, get even with us or, or, or to make us pay for some wrong we've done. Because you end up with kind of a dysfunctional view of God. There's this, this girl that I knew who got married and found out that she couldn't have kids. It was a real tragic thing for her because she really wanted kids. And she became convinced that it was because she, she and her, and her fiancé had premarital sex. And this is God's way of getting back at her, God's way of getting even. She'll pay for that. And I'm wondering why other people who have premarital sex still have kids. Where's the consistency in this? Or there's a guy that I knew one time that, that had a father who had a very, very rebellious teenage son, and he was convinced that this was God's way of getting back at him because he was a rebellious teenager when he was his father's son, and his father always told him, I'm going to pray that God will give you the same kind of son that you are to me so that you'll know what kind of pain you're causing me. And boom, it happens. Those old voices come back to haunt you. This guy really believed that, and I was wondering, why would, the, why would God screw up a teenager's life just to get back at this guy? It's a high price to pay. This is the honest to, to God truth. I got called uh, by a radio station a couple months ago from Nevada. They got my name from somebody who had my name from somebody who had my name from sometime when I said something that I shouldn't have said, I guess. It got in the paper. He calls me because he wanted to know what I, a theologian, thought about the flooding in the Midwest. Was this a judgment of God or not? And he said he had some kind of poll that showed that one-fourth of all Christians were really convinced that it was a flood. Another one-fourth suspected that it, it was, everyone knew it was a flood, but they thought it was judgment from God. And another fourth suspected that it might be judgment of God, so he wanted to know what I thought. Is this God's hand of judgment upon the Midwest? 
And I, what I was wondering is if, if this is the way God judges sin and, and gets even and pays back, why is New York going through a drought? Because while the St. Louis farmers are no doubt sinners, they're a whole lot more righteous than the New York stockbrokers. So where's the consistency again? Midwest people we all know are more godly than the coast people. But it's like this. You know, I, I used to work in a home for emotionally disturbed teenagers. And half these kids were in this, these kids were really, uh, it, it was a halfway house, and they were really messed up. Emotionally, psychologically, really a wreck. And half of them were in there because they'd been abused by discipline, and the other half were in there because they never had any kind of discipline. But the half that were in there because they had been abused by discipline, it was abusive because there was never any consistency there. You do it one time and get whammoed for it, and next time you get praised for it. So the law of cause and effect never set into their minds. And it was abusive because sometimes it was excessive. Uh, the, the punishment way outweighed whatever the crime was. One, one young girl that I worked with, 12 years old, she had got caught shoplifting, uh, stealing a candy bar, and her mother put her through one of those old, put her arm through one of those old dryers where they used to have those, those wheels, uh, metal wheels that would wring out the clothes, put her arm through there up to her shoulder, now she had a deformed arm. That screws you up because you stole a candy bar. And they're emotionally disturbed, and the punishment was abusive because sometimes they didn't know why they were being punished. Sometimes their parents just wanted to rage, to get it off their chest. Sometimes the, their punishment wasn't about them at all. It was about their parents and their anger and their frustration and their desire to get even. So what, what, it wasn't about them. And they think, what am I being punished for? And if they thought they were being punished, they sometimes weren't clear on, on why they were being punished. What, what did I do wrong? And there wasn't consistency with the whole thing. It was abusive. And the problem I have with the kind of standard interpretation, or at least a, a widespread interpretation of the Hebrews 12 kind of discipline, when it's attached to infertility and rebellious sons and floods and other tragedies we might have in our life is that we seem to be in exactly the same position with regard to God as those kids are with regard to their dysfunctional parents. We're left guessing. Is this, is this God? Um, you know, it's kind of a, a Monty Python sort of thing. A hand comes down and zaps you and you're wondering, is this God? What am I being punished for? Okay, what particular sin am I being punished for? And there's always enough sin there to find something that you're being punished for, but then, but then you know, you're left to guess at the whole thing. And it seems inconsistent because other people have kids. Why are you infertile? And they did the same thing you did. And, and, and other people are more are as sinful as you are, but you got the flood and they didn't. Where's the consistency? And sometimes the tragedies of our life seem way in excess to anything that we might have done, especially when looked at after the cross. Does anyone deserve to have a kid killed in a car wreck? It's a whole lot that I'm confused about, very honestly. But there's two things that I'm, I know that I want to share with you. And they're principles of God's discipline to us, and they're principles that we can use with regard to disciplining our kids. And this will not settle all the issues. There will always be gray areas, but when you have gray areas, what's more important than hard and fast how-to manual rules is principles to live by. And call the shots the best you can. And the first thing that I'm sure of, the first thing that I'm certain of, and I think what is the most important thing to be certain of when you're talking about God's discipline, is that that view of God, that dysfunctional father, handcocked back, ready to slap you anytime kind of view of God, is not a proper, correct, New Testament view of God. Whatever else we'd say about God's discipline, it's not about getting even. It's not about vengeance. It's not about retribution. 
It's true that sin is a grievous offense against God. It's true that God isn't some kind of naive grandfather in heaven who just says, oh, it's no big deal, go your own way. that's, That's a wrong picture of God. Sin is grievous, sin is dangerous, sin is destructive, and according to God's character, sin must be punished. That's true. But what is also true, and this is the central truth of the New Testament, and this is the truth which if we are going to have a right view of God, we have to have it seared into our brain, The truth is that as grievous and as vile and as destructive and as condemning as sin is and always has been, it has already been paid for. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. God himself became a man. God himself took upon himself all of our sin. God settled the score by settling with himself. God got even, if you will, by getting even with himself. And it happened at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. All the sin of the world and all the damnation of the world and all the destruction of the world and all that's dark in the world, everything that you've ever done or that I've ever done or ever shall do was put upon Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that God made him who knew no sin, who was pure and spotless, the righteous Lamb of God, God made him to be sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And if you believe this morning and cling to the cross as your only source of salvation, all of the righteousness of God and the holiness of God, the splendor of God is given to you by grace because all that was degrading and separating you from God and sinful in your life was given to Christ. And if that means anything to us this morning, if there's any implications that that has for us this morning, it means this. That whatever else God's judgment may look like, whatever else God's punishment may look like, it's not about getting even. There's nothing to get even with anymore, not for the believer. It's not about vengeance, and it's not about retribution. I don't know why you're infertile, but I can tell you this. It doesn't have to do because you're paying for some sin in your past because your sin's been paid for. And I don't know why you've got a rebellious son, but I do know this. God's not getting even with you because of some sin in your past. That sin's been paid for. And I don't know why there's been flooding in the Midwest. But it's not to atone for some kind of sin because the sin has been atoned for. No more pain needs to be shed over over sin. No more blood needs to be shed. There's no more punishment due. The cross completes it all. Can we believe that? The cross finishes it as far as the east is from the west. God has cast our sins from us. It's a done deal. It's finished. Fine. So whatever else God's agenda is in disciplining us, it's not about paying for sin. The sin's been paid for. It's not about God at all. About God getting angry. About God venting his wrath, his frustration. Send down a flood and don't tell him why. <laughs> Let him guess. It's not about God getting anything off his chest. He got it off his chest on the cross of Calvary. Discipline is for our sake. To build growth in our life. It's a very important principle that we need to hang on to as we talk about disciplining our kids, right? And that, and that, that truth alone. When we discipline, if our discipline is going to be constructive, and if our discipline is going to be loving, and if our discipline is going to be godly, if it's going to be constructive in, in, in our children's life, it has to be about our children, not us. Those of you who have been parents know this. Those of you who haven't been, take it, our word for it. That kids can drive you to the boiling point, to the breaking point. Uh, they, 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 they can make you so mad. Some of you here this morning under the age of 18 know that you have done this. 
And all of us, maybe think back a ways and know that we have done this. You get so mad. You get so angry. You, you, you start to shake. Your voice starts to quiver. You start to sweat. You feel like doing harm. You feel like getting violent, don't you? you the mean streak comes out. You want to say something that will cut to the heart. You want to do something that will inflict some pain. This isn't about the child's good. This is about getting even. This isn't about their welfare. This is about getting something off your chest. This isn't about making them into whole people. This is about you releasing some of that boiling stuff that's there inside of you. And when we discipline with that kind of fuel, when we discipline with that kind of motivation, it cannot be loving and it cannot be constructive. It's not the kind of discipline that God brings to us. What we learn from the Lord is to deal with our issues as our issues and not use our kids as a way of dealing with our issues. My suggestion is this. When you are at that point where you're just going to snap, where you're just going to do something, where it's about your anger, it's not about their good. It's about your frustration, it's not about their good. It's about your indictment over having your authority violated. It's not about building good character in their life. When that is the case, and you want to hurt, you want to hit, you want to scream, you want to shake, stop and walk away. Walk away from it for a while and deal with your stuff first. Because kids aren't the format for us to deal with our stuff. Take a walk. Scream, shout, kick a tree, spit on the ground, throw a rock. Even swing a cat, but don't swing your kid. Well, it's a lesser of two evils. And you'll feel better. The godly way of dealing with anger. Get it off. And if you have the presence of mind, tell your kids that. Look, I don't want to say what, what I, things I might regret later. I don't want to do things I might regret later. I'm going for a walk. And I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. And deal with your stuff so that when you go back, you have a clear perspective on how to deal with their stuff. So that it's not about revenge. It's about love. I'm sure that God's discipline is not that of a dysfunctional parent in, involved in retribution and involved in God's... It, it doesn't flow out of retribution on God's part. I'm also sure about what God's discipline is for. And what it's for is spiritual growth. What it's for is our maturation. What it's for is our becoming Christ-like. The Bible says in, in the verse that Paul read earlier in Proverbs, I think it's chapter 13, that foolishness is in the heart of a child. The word there means waywardness, folly, silliness. Foolishness is in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it from them. The analogy that, that's, that, that's being referred to there is of a shepherd and a sheep. In fact, I always thought that the rod of discipline, it's referred to 13 times in the Old Testament, the rod of discipline or the rod of correction, I always thought that that was a beating rod. In my house when I was growing up, uh, with that role model of discipline that I told you about, we had an ugly stick. We called it the ugly stick. It hung right on the inside the bathroom wall. And whenever we did anything to deserve this, Mom got the ugly stick. And it had holes drilled in it just so that it wouldn't get wind resistance, so it could hit you at full speed. <laughs> she was smart. And I always thought that this was God's ugly stick, that this rod of discipline, spare not the rod, spare not the rod, use the ugly stick and whack the living daylights out of the kid. The rod of discipline for a shepherd, though, that was a technical term for, the, for, a, a, discipline, uh, for a shepherd's uh, staff. And the purpose of it was to lead the sheep along. That's what discipline is. It's about going in a certain direction. It's about staying on course. The shepherd would lead the sheep to the pasture of grazing that he knew would be good for them. And he wanted to keep the sheep from going off into their own pastures because the shepherd knows what the sheep don't know, and that's that there's scorpions out there, there's poisonous snakes out there, there's coyotes and wolves out there, there's cliffs out there. And so it's dangerous to go off on your own. Stay with the numbers. Stay along the right way. The shepherd knows best. 
And when these stupid sheep would start to get off on their own, there's foolishness in the heart of sheep. When they, when they start to go off on their own, that rod would be there to say, no, 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 get back, get back. And once in a while, you'd get a pretty belligerent sheep that would say, no, I want to go over there. I want to go over there. <laughs> Leave me alone. And, 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 and he'd have to, to, to use that staff to get around his neck and yank him back in, and maybe that would hurt a little bit. But the primary purpose wasn't to inflict pain. The primary purpose was to lead and to guide and to set on a straight course. It was also for protection. The, the shepherd would beat the, the, the bush, the bushes out in front of the sheep to make sure there weren't any snakes or scorpions or coyotes hidden in there. The rod of correction that God uses for us is for our good. It's for leading us in a certain way, going in a certain direction, staying on a certain course, and for our protection because God, our shepherd, knows things that we don't know. We don't always see why premarital sex is wrong, and we maybe don't see why adultery is wrong, maybe we don't see why pornography is wrong, maybe we don't see why gluttony and, and backbiting and selfishness is wrong. It seems very good at the time, like a sheep that says, there's a nice pasture I want to graze in, I'm going to go over there. We're like that. But what we learn from Scripture is that God loves us too much to let us do that. Or at least he's going to put up a good fight to keep us on course. He loves us too much to let us go our own way. He loves us. He cares too much to not use the rod of discipline in our life. He loves us too much to let us do our own thing, to follow out our, follow out our, our own foolishness, to go into our own pasture. And so discipline is God's loving way, even if it involves pain sometimes, of keeping us on course. And that also brings a second principle that we can use with regard to our families. It is not love that leads a parent to say to a kid, go your own way. That is not love. It is, it's not love of a parent to say, hey, you know, I'm just okay, you're okay, do your own thing. One of the scary things about our culture is that we're swinging so far on the other side of the pendulum of, of, of abusive discipline that we're coming to this sort of licentious culture, this lackadaisical culture that's seeing discipline as somehow inherently abusive. But it's not. It's good when it's done in the right way. But it's not love that leads a parent to say, or a school to say, or a government to say, you've got to find your own inner wisdom, clarify your own values, follow your own course, find your own inner person, and do your own inner thing, and don't worry about whether that agrees with your parents or not. Find your own pastors, do your own grazing, follow your own course. That's not love. Because there's foolishness in the heart of a child because the child doesn't see what you see. Parental authority is about taking your knowledge... And helping that child, that sheep, not follow its foolish ways, but to go in the path that leads to wholeness of life. And it's not love that says, I don't care anymore, I give up. That's not love. Dobson, I think, had a right, though every kid has always disagreed with Dobson. But Dobson says this, that in the heart of a child, the child really, when, when, when you draw a line in the sand and the child looks you at the eyes and steps over, the child wants to know two things. Number one, are you tough enough to be secure about? And number two, do you care enough to be inconvenienced? The kid knows that he doesn't know or she doesn't know what's going on, and she wants to know, is anyone in control in life? Is anyone in charge? And their way of going like this while they look you in the eye is their way of saying, are you the one? Are, are you tough enough? Or do I have to handle things myself? And they really want to lose the battle. They'll deny it, they'll rebel, but they want to lose that battle. They also want to know, do you care enough to use that rod of discipline, that rod of correction, to tap me when I'm going the wrong way? To love as God loves and to discipline as God disciplines is to take the rod of correction and with loving motives, not about ourselves but for our kids, with loving motives to tap and to get them back in line to go into the right pasture to graze in. 
So final question that I have not yet answered, and it's probably one that you still have because I raised it at the beginning of this sermon. And the answer is this. What does God's tapping look like? What does that tapping look like? We always hear the principle, God disciplines those, and we're left to guess what does that look like. I had a long talk with the Lord this week about this issue. And I just said, Lord, I, I am... Uh, Maybe because of some of my own baggage from my own upbringing that I've shared from the pulpit here. This seems, it really seems foggy. I've always been foggy about God's discipline. What does that look like? Is the infertility your rod that you're using? And is it in the tragedies of life, in the kid getting killed, in the broken homes? Is that your way of spanking us? Are you in the big, wow, painful, ungodly stuff? Is that your way of getting us in the line? Or what? And I just had a heart-to-heart. And the answer I got, and I don't want to tell you, say it was an audible voice, but it was a distinct impression, was this. Greg, the Lord just said, Greg, what would you think of a parent who only shows up at the big times to do the tough, mean stuff? The father who sees all sorts of little things going wrong and, and little things that need to be tapped in the line, but doesn't do anything about it just sort of sits back and spectates for, for all that time, but stuffs that rage, stuffs that anger, and finally there's one thing that the kid does. It's not really a major thing, but it adds up with all the other things that the kid has done that the father hasn't said a word about, and now the kid does this, touches what he wasn't supposed to touch one last time, and the father explodes, just rages, shakes, gets violent, throws out mean words, maybe hits. The wild, big, bang, tough stuff. Is that the godly way to discipline? Is that appropriate way to discipline? Is that for the kids good? And the answer is no. The Lord says, don't look for me so much in the big stuff. But a loving father, like a loving shepherd, is always involved in the sheep's life and is always tapping, is always leading, is always guiding, is always pointing a certain kind of way. So it's not so much in the whirlwind and the infertility and the, and the flood that you, you find the hand of God, though God can use that. The Lord said, Greg, I'm everywhere. I'm the Lord of the earth, and the earth, everything about the earth, and all the people on the earth can be used as my rod of correction, my guiding hand, my loving sepulchre if I choose to. Romans 8.28, I think, is talking specifically about this. The whole passage deals with suffering in the Christian's life. And, and what Paul says is that all things work together for the better, or God in all things is working together for the better for those who love the Lord. And I don't believe that that means that God causes all things, but it means that God can use all things. He can use the pain of your marriage, the sandpapering effect of your marriage, the conflict of your marriage. He can use that as his rod to teach you things, to, to, to cause you to grow spiritually and to build character. He doesn't, he doesn't cause the conflict, but given that the conflict's there, he and his wisdom can use it. And the conflicts that we might have with our kids and the conflicts we might have with our neighbors or our employees, all of them can be rods in God's hand to, to produce, through pain, lessons for us to go along the straight way. He can use illness, he can use financial disaster, he can use hardship, he can use depression as the rod in our life. And he does it. Not that, not that he causes that, but that given that it's there in this fallen world, sometimes from our own responsibility, he can use it to instruct us. And even, the, even sometimes the painful consequences of our own sin, God uses as a rod to teach us, to lovingly and graciously instruct us. When we, through our own selfishness, cause pain in other people's lives, God can use that pain to wake us up, to tap us on the side of the head, 
and show us how selfish we've been and use that to begin to correct us. And he's so wise, he can even use our selfishness as a way of correcting the people that we cause pain to. When we, through our spiritual negligence, through lack of prayer and lack of fellowship with Jesus, when our hearts get hard and we end up, as we sometimes do, making decisions and choices that are very, very, very bad choices, and we cause pain on ourselves and pain for others, God can use that. He doesn't cause it, but given that it's there, He can say, this will make a very, very good rod for Greg. Look what you've done. It's not an I told you so kind of thing, but it's a way of saying, use this pain to get you back in the line, to get you on course, to be going the way you should, should be going, to teach me how to grow and what I need in my life. God can use it all. I don't think He causes it all, but He uses it to our own betterment. That's why the scripture says here, and it's an encouraging word. It is an encouraging word in Hebrews. He says, all hardship is God's discipline. doesn't mean he causes it, but he can use it as discipline. And it's encouraging because it means this. Whatever it is we're going through, little or small, the rubbing things in our life, the, the, the grating things, the frustrating things, the aggravating things, the depressing things, it doesn't have to be meaningless. It can be used by God like fertilizer to produce good fruit in our life. If we have the eye to see it and the ear to hear it and the heart, and this is the crucial thing, the heart to yield to it. Because the goal of the whole thing, I close with this, the goal of the whole thing is brokenness. Spiritual maturity, according to the New Testament, is being broken. It's being broken. God's goal is to bring us to the point where we're no longer in control of our life, he's in control. And we're not calling the shots, but he's calling the shots. We're not in the driver's seat, but he's in the driver's seat. God wants to break us of this self and this self's way of sucking life off of things that have no life and, and going into false pastures that are dangerous and going our own way and that self that's full of foolishness. God wants to break it. So that our life is Jesus Christ. And the meaning of our life is Jesus Christ. And the identity of our life is Jesus Christ. And the love of our life is Jesus Christ. And the joy of our life is Jesus Christ. And all that we are and ever shall be is Jesus Christ. So that the fullness of life is found in Him. But it only comes to the extent that we are broken. And little kids sometimes wince when they're going to be punished because they know it's going to hurt. And in the same way, maybe this sounds kind of harsh. It sounds kind of harsh and cruel and mean and vindictive and... If you have a past that has abusive stuff in it, I pray, God, right now that you won't hear it as that. He doesn't want to break you the way your father broke your nose. That's not the way God breaks us. He breaks us out of love. He breaks us out of grace. Because he knows, he sees as a shepherd what we, the foolish sheep, sometimes don't see. That there's no greater fullness of life than comes when you lose your life. There's no greater joy than the joy of being Christ everything in your life and nothing else. There's no greater freedom than the freedom that comes from being sold out to the Lord. And there's no greater peace than the peace that comes from relinquishing our life, the things we, that cause us pain, the things that rub on us, to let them go, to say, God, they're yours, take them. My whole life is yours. And all the sandpapering and the rubbing and the tapping that God does through a wide variety of means in our life has this effect if we yield to it. It weans us from the world to be addicted to God and to Him alone. And the, the harder the sheep pulls against the shepherd's rod, the harder the shepherd has to pull. 
My prayer this morning is that we'll have eyes to see the hand of God in all of our life that's disciplining us, refining us, that we'd see it as a loving hand and that we'd yield to that hand. Let's stand and pray. I've got something on my heart this morning, and I just want to throw this out. I believe that this morning there are some who have been going through being tapped by the rod. Maybe you, don't, maybe you didn't know until right now that it was even the rod of God that, you, that was tapping you. But there's pain right now. There's conflict right now. It's fear right now. And it's scary right now. But you're kicking against it. You're hanging on when you need to be letting go. You're holding on to yourself when you need to be broken. And you've got an area in your life, and I don't know what it is, but I just feel impressed to say this, an area in your life that is your stronghold, that is your idol that you're hanging on to, and it is causing you nothing but pain, and it will continue to be that rod in your life until you break before the Lord. You're kicking against the goads as Paul was on the way to Damascus, and the Lord needs to kick you off your high horse. And the Holy Spirit is telling you, and I don't know if it's one person or a hundred people, but the Lord's telling you, break before me. Get back in line. Let me guide you with my healing hand, with my disciplining rod. Sell out because what you want from what you're holding on to, you won't get. But you will get much, much, infinitely more than that if you let go and let me fill that void. This morning, don't resist. The Lord, the freedom from pain comes when you sell out. I want to invite you after we pray to come forward to this auditorium. And there will be some people up here who would love to pray with you and work through this disciplining stuff with you. And there may be some here this morning that don't even know the shepherd yet. You don't know who the Lord is. If you want your sins paid for and that to be a done deal, come forward this morning and pray with somebody to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father, I thank you for your word this morning that is, even when we are confused, you have light and you can speak through our confusion and you can speak through our questions. And I feel, Lord, that you've done that. And I pray, God, that your spirit would now uh, confirm in each of our hearts the truths of your word. And those, Lord, who need work now this morning, I pray, God, that your spirit would, like a magnet, an irresistible magnet, Lord, pull them forward to join in prayer with somebody. It's not a fix-all kind of thing, but there's power and solidarity in prayer. And, Lord, especially for the one or the two or the five that are here this morning, and they know in their heart that it's not a real thing that they know who you are and love you and accept you as their Savior. I pray, God, that that prayer would be confirmed here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Go forth in the love of God.